every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. It's Thursday, the 11th of January, 2024. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk. Thank you for listening and for making this show one of the most downloaded business and finance podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Joe Biden plans to send a high-level delegation of former top officials to Taipei after the election in Taiwan on Saturday, according to reports, in a provocative move that could increase tensions between Washington and Beijing. The Financial Times reported Wednesday that the White House has tapped James Steinberg, a former Democratic Deputy Secretary of State, and Stephen Hadley, a former Republican National Security Advisor, to lead the bipartisan delegation. China's economy will grow by 5.3% this year, according to a top government think tank. The Chinese Academy of Sciences said it expected the world's second largest economy to stabilise this year in its annual economic outlook issued on Tuesday. It forecasts growth will slow to 5% in the first quarter before picking up later in the year, boosted by domestic consumption and investment, but dragged down slightly by exports. The CAS is the first state think tank to make economic projections for 2024, but its forecasts are at odds with those of the World Bank, which is forecasting economic growth on the mainland to slow to 4.5% in its report released on the same day. The Vice President of the European Central Bank, Louis de Guindos, said in a speech in Madrid on Wednesday that the Eurozone economy is heading for another downturn in the fourth quarter, but this will not be enough to avoid a transitory pickup in inflation. Mr Guindos anticipates the rapid disinflation observed in 2023 will decelerate in 2024 and temporarily, temporarily pause at the beginning of this year due to the expiration of energy-related compensatory measures, which may trigger a brief inflationary uptick. Japan's Topics Index hit a nearly 34-year high Wednesday as hopes for a sustained period of ultra-loose monetary policy and improved corporate governance standards boosted the country's equities. The index rose 1.3%, touching a level last seen in March 1990. The export heavy Nikkei 225 climbed 2%, blowing past the 34,000 mark for the first time since the 2nd of March 1990. A rebound in technology stocks helped lift the Japanese markets. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and with a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safro Group. I do read all your questions and comments about the show, so if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter US stocks rose on Wednesday, though traders held off from making big moves ahead of inflation data later today and the start of fourth quarter earnings season on Friday. The S&P 500 gained 0.6% to end at 4,783. The Dow added 171 points, or half a percent, to close at 37,696. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.8% to settle at 14,970. Consumer discretionary and tech were the top performing sectors. NVIDIA added 2.3% to close at a new all-time high. And NVIDIA has surged almost 240% over the past 12 months now. Microsoft rose by 1.9% to reach a fresh record high. And Facebook parent Meta, that surged 3.7%, approaching its highest close in two years. 
The 10-year Treasury yield rose two basis points to 4.03% ahead of the US Consumer Price Index report today. The US dollar index steadied at 0.2% higher, around 102.5%. The yen was the G10 underperformer, slipping 0.9% against the dollar to 145 and three quarter yen per dollar, following a notable decline in Japanese wages in November. In Shanghai, the yuan was unchanged at 7.1711, ahead of Chinese inflation data on Friday. Spot gold ended the session 0.2% lower at $2,024 an ounce. Crude oil inventories in the US rose by 1.34 million barrels in the week ending the 5th of January, data from the EIA Petroleum Status Report showed, and following that data, Brent crude oil paired gains of 1.5% to settle 1% lower at $76.80 a barrel. Bitcoin swung in a wide range Wednesday after a highly anticipated decision by the US Securities and Exchange Commission to approve a spot Bitcoin exchange traded fund. This morning, Bitcoin is trading a third of a percent higher at 45,560 after the SEC announcement. Hong Kong stocks, they fell for a seventh day to post the longest losing streak since mid-August. The Hang Seng Index dropped 93 points or 0.6% to 16,097 and that takes its slump since the beginning of the year to 5.6%. It's the worst start to a year since 2005 for Hong Kong stocks. The tech index slipped 0.8%. On the mainland, the CSI 300 lost half a percent to finish at 3,277, hitting its lowest level since January the 31st, 2019, almost five years ago. And Hong Kong stocks projected to open slightly higher this morning. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 30 points. That should put the index at about 16,125. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We're almost reached the end of the week. So let's welcome our regular Thursday morning commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning, good morning. Um, let's start with some of these economic reports that we're seeing. This is the sort of season of the year where we start getting um, a lot of institutions making their economic growth forecasts for 2024. They seem to be coming out, Andrew, on the rather gloomy side, don't they? The World Bank's report uh, warning uh, that global economic growth is going to be uh, at the worst since the uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, what do you make of this? Are we, are we missing something? Is is the economy, global economy, really looking that uh, that gloomy? Well, uh, there, there are two things. One, it's purely technical and a little bit, uh, I would say, pretentious and all of also very priggish and, and nitpicking. Uh, the thing is, is, the 1920s is going to be a lost decade. Yeah, you bet it is. We had three <laughs> years of the pandemic that has nothing to do with economics. So uh, comparing it to before and after the pandemic is going to be like taking candy from the baby. Of mm. course, there was a rapid recovery and there was a very large fall. But this has, again, you know, you, you were being hit by bad weather in inverted commas. Uh, I, must, I must admit, uh, and I have to say that very carefully because I, I'm not being supercilious here. You know, we went from 2.6 to 2.4 global economy. So this is a meaningless statement. Mm. In God's name, in what use this is going to be to be made of? Okay, by either myself or my clients or anybody else. And also, we're going to drop by 20 basis points. Well, I don't know. 
bit of help me out here. <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that you're going to lose lose sleep over, is it? Well, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, I'll burst into in, into my house and shout to my lovely wife, Annabella. Annabella, world economy is going to go down by 20 basis points. <laughs> we better we better cancel dinner tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, we better can, yeah, cancel everything. Cancel, cancel food. <laughs> unnecessary expenses like bread and shoes. Now, the other part, of course, is the, the, uh, the difference between what the World Bank is saying and what uh, the, the think tank in China is also saying, and they are saying 50 basis points difference. Well, mm. yeah. But that's a, a government think tank, so I suppose um, you would expect them to be uh, more optimistic, wouldn't you? The, the CAS uh, is projecting uh, so projecting growth of 5.3% this year. What they do say is that they anticipate uh, that consumption and investment is going to pick up, but they don't explain, as far as I can see in their report, why they actually think that, because there's not a lot of sign of consumption or investment picking up at the moment. Yeah, yeah. This is true. I don't want to, I don't want also to fall into the trap and say, well, that's the government. And of course, they're going to say that, won't they? Uh, I will interject something very, very quickly because I think it's quite opposite. Back, <laughs> this is really going back, back in about 1994, 95, I was working for Salomon Brothers. And Salomon Brothers were foolish enough to give me a large sum of money. And I set up a small think tank of mainland academics and also Hong Kong academics. And the whole point is to say how reliable are official Chinese numbers. I mean, at the time, it was the, the plat du jour. And the conclusions they, they drew, they were reasonably accurate for you to make decisions or say things that will be helpful to investors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I will combine that with the fact that my PhD was on the Russian economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a, a mini expert on quite a lot of aspects of what a really, a very centralistic uh, government can do with, with numbers. And even in the case of the Soviet Union, where the numbers were deliberately cooked, but deliberately cooked, okay? There was reason involved because everybody was using deliberately cooked numbers that they were not correct. They knew that this was the case, and therefore they were taking care of that, which means that it is very, very difficult, incredibly difficult, to be a good liar consistently. Somewhere you're going to be caught. Mm. And I presume anyway, to be fair, these uh, even yeah, exactly, if you work for exactly. a state think tank, you have a reputation, don't you, which you want to uphold exactly. and you don't Sorry, want to... A little bit long-winded, okay? So in other words, you can lie, but you can never lie. Because so I don't mind the fact that there is this difference because possibly they know something that we don't know or perhaps they tweaked the expectational aspects a little bit stronger than, let's say, the World Bank would have done so, yeah. Well, one thing that stood out in the in the uh, the World Bank report, which I think does make a difference, doesn't it? I, I totally agree with you that you know twenty basis points cut in forecast for global economic growth doesn't make a difference. But the one thing they do point out is the big difference between developed economies and emerging um, economies, and that is that. Uh, the average income of an individual now, if you live um, in, in one of the, the advanced economies, is higher than what it was before COVID. But if you live in an emerging economy, um, your income now is about 75% of pre-COVID levels, maybe in some of the poorest countries, about 66% of that. I presume that is something that is very noticeable if you, if you live in those countries. And if I may say, it's a pity I never trademarked that expression. I call it the whale effect, the whale effect. Now, will China grow fast enough 
so that in three or four years' time, its GDP is going to be bigger than that of the United States. Well, now apparently, it seems that kind of a statement seems to have sort of died out. Now, people tend to forget that 10 years back, for China to grow 10% was not that difficult because it was 10% of something relatively small. Now, for the United States to grow at 10%, it's nearly impossible, okay, because you've got this colossal whale, and 10% of a colossal whale is a hell of a lot of flesh. Mm. Equally, if you have a very small minnow, a very small fish, and you take 10% out of that, that's a very, very small amount, which means equally easy to add it back to that. And that's why I want to have a kind of a whale index that will allow the fact that the differences between big and small economies, given the COVID period, can be a little bit tricky to have a true comparison of. Mm. Okay, so yeah, that was a long-winded uh, expression to, to tell you, yes, there are differences, but also the differences have to be explained in terms that big economies can lose a hell of a lot. Small economies can also lose a hell of a lot, but in absolute terms, it's tiny. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not going to be reflected Okay, in uh, in uh, in in world indexes, and and this is all coming at a time when. Uh, Peter, I'm sorry about that. No, no, it's, it's, this is interesting. It's a it's an interesting conversation because this is all happening at a time when central banks are quite optimistic, aren't they? That they're on top of inflation. We're going to get the U.S. inflation data out um, tonight. Everyone seems to focus on these month to month movements in 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 inflation at the moment, but nevertheless, the general trend certainly seems to be um, downwards in uh, inflation at the moment. So you would think that that would actually rather boost central and, and make some of these uh, economists less gloomy. Yeah, and actually, you know, Peter, <clears throat> you are the host, and I hate to disagree with you, but actually there is a dissonant note here, and that is Japanese economy, mm. Japanese inflation is actually coming down, and it's coming down quite strongly. Mm. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at some figures here. October was 2.9, November was 2.3, December was 2.1. That's not what the Bank of Japan wants. Mm. It was higher inflation. <laughs> and they want higher wages, which the data yesterday showed that they're not getting either. That's coming down as well. If I was to say, excuse me, are you happy with these lower inflation numbers? They will tell you, no, we're not. Mm. Or I've changed their mind and they're not telling us. So, so was, <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, didn't mean to interrupt. Carry on. No, no, no. That's what I said. You know, yes, this is correct. If you're looking at the United States and European Bank, actually, China has no problem with inflation whatsoever. You never mm. hear the PwC coming up and says, "Well, we're going to fight with inflation." Inflation in China is less than one percent. Actually, it is either minus zero zero something or it is a few basis points. So China has zero point of uh, concerns over inflation. Japan does have but completely in the opposite direction with anybody else. They want more. They don't want less. Mm. Okay. So out of the four major banks, 50% are completely on their own, and the other 50 are concerned about are not concerned that inflation is not under control. It's actually just coming down. Well, in, in China, we're going to get, aren't we, soon, we're going to get the government's uh, uh, sort of plenum where they're going to make forecasts for the, uh, for the economy. That. All we seem to be hearing at the moment coming out of China is about how much there's going to be a further crackdown on uh, consumption. It's even going to include things like business dinners now. It does seem, doesn't it, that this sort of um, anti-business sort of sentiment is, is not going away at the moment. It's hard to see how the economy is going to improve in, in that sort of environment. Yeah, I, I do not disagree. And this is always, always the, the classical 
issue that uh, if you have an economic and political system that can exercise a great degree of control or a direction of the economy and also an open market system, how do you balance the two? And my conclusion is, is it has nothing to do with how efficient or productive the two sections are. In other words, you say, look, they're doing great, so let's give them more. They're doing better, let's give them less. Uh, it is a matter of maintaining the degree of control and power over both. And in China, it looks as if the time has come now to, to pay a lot more attention to the state as opposed to the private sector. Mm. This, is, this is not a criticism. This is not saying, oh, this is a terrible thing to happen. It is simply an observation, and that is what it is. Now, if asked, should they or should they not do it? Well, presumably they know better than I do. But clearly, yes, I agree with you. And it's not what businesses want to see, is it, at the moment? They're, they're looking for signs of maybe a, a more friendly environment, but they're, they're not getting it. Yeah, but uh, talking, talking of which, I'm jumping a little bit the gun because immediately it sprang to my mind when uh, I could hear you saying, because I haven't, I haven't even picked this up uh, through my Bloomberg, that the day after the elections in Taiwan, a huge commission is coming out from the United States to visit Taiwan. <laughs> I thought, oh my God. Talk about bringing a ham sandwich to a bar mitzvah. I mean, in spite of this cannot be anything more provocative because if the Kuomintang has won the day, okay, well, they'll come to congratulate them and say, this is absolutely great. If the BDF has won the day, ah, boy. The Chinese are not going to be pleased about that at it, all. It's hard to imagine what the US, what the Biden administration hopes to achieve from that, isn't it? I mean, as you say, it couldn't be more provocative right after um, an election to send um, a, a high-level delegation like that over to, uh, to Taipei. To tell them what? I mean, if it is anti-Chinese sentiment to congratulate it, or if it is pro-Chinese sentiment to say, watch out, guys, we might not be here to back you up. I mean, I can't think what else it could be. Mm. You know, this is really ham-fisted. I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, well, anyway. How, how important is this election in Taiwan? I mean, this is a year of elections. Is more, more elections than we've ever seen before, uh, more than half the global population voting um, this year. But the, where does the Taiwan election fit in the grand scheme of things? And also its importance, maybe, uh, to things like US-China relations and to the economy overall? Well, it fits, I imagine, if I was to wear my Chinese hat. Uh, it is not exactly good timing because the economy in China is not doing well. Okay, so you are not discussing from a position of strength. Okay, uh, clearly Hong Kong is not doing well, both economically and apparently there are still quite a lot of questions about the political direction of Hong Kong. And in a way, uh, the Chinese might need to, to run even faster to convince the Taiwanese that the one country, two systems is, is alive and kicking and to look at Hong Kong. In other words, they, this is, this is, this is a, real, a real big issue for them because, of course, they never fail to insist that integration and unification is going to happen. Okay? So, in other words, this is a continuous humming noise in the background. And if you have an election in which you, you may very well end up, you already have eight years of, uh, I, I can never get remember exactly the, the initials, DPF or something, or DPD. DPP, okay. yeah. 
Maybe if you had eight years, you're going to have another four years. Well, this is not this is not good news for China at all. Mm. I mean, because that suggests, doesn't it, that if we have the third term now for the DPP, when you know we before that we'd had decades of KMT rule, um, if we now have basically you know three terms of DPP, it tends to suggest, doesn't it, that Taiwan is actually moving further away from China in in all sorts of ways, both economically, politically, in terms of its uh, its system, which is not what China wants to see. Yeah, and the, and also the world has done two things that again very quietly is doesn't really help the Chinese position, and that is of course the invasion of uh, Ukraine by 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 Putin, and in a way the invasion by Israel of in inverted commas the Palestinian state, however well or badly justified this might have been. In other words, you know, to have one war going on and now to have who was going on, well, you know, it becomes a little bit difficult to say if we don't unify, uh, let's say, uh, through political uh, measures, then uh, we cannot exclude the possibility of actually occupying. And I'm simply using what the Chinese are telling us. So again, you know, in a very strange way, if if I was in the Chinese foreign office and someone told me, what do you think about the Hamas-Israeli war? I would say, this is not good for us, for Taiwan. And you say, well, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean about that? Mm. It's the cost. I mean, there, there was a report in Bloomberg this week, uh, which basically said that it came from Bloomberg Economics. They estimated uh, a price tag of around $10 trillion, about 10% of global GDP, uh, if Taiwan... Uh, if China went to war um, over Taiwan, and if, you know, on a lesser sort of basis, if there was a blockade um, of, of, uh, of Taiwan for, say, um, about a year or so, that would still have a pretty dev- devastating effect on both the local and the global economy. The cost of, of, of trying to um, have some sort of military conflict over Taiwan, you would think, uh, would put everyone off, wouldn't it? Well, to, to, to put it mildly, nobody. <laughs> I don't think there are actually people that say, yes, 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 yummy, yummy, yummy. Let's have mm. a third war. Okay, and let's have a war that could potentially bring United States versus China. I mean, that's a, that's a real McCoy. That's the full Monty. Kind of I, can't, I can't believe that anybody could be serious about that. But equally, uh, if one wants to have a deterrent, which is, uh, let's say, uh, uh, potentially and actually threatening, then uh, perhaps you cannot stop saying we're not going to use this because then it will lose all its deterrence value altogether. Mm-hmm. This, is, uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is logical. Also, I'd like to know how they calculated the cost. But at least I've read part of the report that at least they didn't say there is a probability of 75.9% that uh, Taiwan and China are going to go to war <laughs> in the year X. Which, Which would be so meaningless anyway, wouldn't bananas. it? Bananas. It's worse than meaningless. Because <laughs> to calculate any probability, you need a repeated event. Well, you know, to the best of my knowledge, China and Taiwan have not gone to war repeatedly over the last century. Mm. So to be, to be fair to Bloomberg, they do explain in their report how they calculated this $10 trillion cost, but we'll leave that for another day, maybe. Let me get your thoughts on the markets before um, before you go, Andrew. Big contrast between Japan and China. Japan's market's at 34-year highs now, back to where they were in March 1990. In the meantime, uh, China's CSI 300, uh, almost at a five-year low. The, the trend that we were seeing last year continues into the beginning of this year. Japan, the best performing market in Asia, China the worst. 
Yeah, and let me also, I, as politicians, say thank you so much for raising this question, and then they proceed to give an answer to a completely different one. Okay, but I'm not going to do that with you, Peter. But equally, I will come to remind your listeners that at the end of the year, Taiwan was 27% up year to date. In other words, mm. for the whole year, 24. Okay, mm. year dollar terms, the best performance, possibly uh, Japan in Asia. Yeah. Wow. Japan and, was slightly uh, better, about 28% last year. Yeah, yeah. And, and also say, well, well, hang on a minute, they're going to have elections, and if they vote the wrong way to China, all it's going to break loose. Apparently, investors mm. completely ignore that. Mm. Mm. So what can one say? <laughs> well, what do you put the outperformance in Japan down to? Uh, I think three things. One, I must admit, this you cannot quantify it, but I love the fact that the second or third biggest economy in the world has got a completely almost surrealistically different, uh, let's call it uh, both a policy and political economy than anybody else. The Japanese struck off completely on their own. They came out and said, we got a lot more, a lot more inflation. We're mm. going to stick with minus and zero interest rates. Okay, so that's, that generates a kind of a peculiarity interest. The second point is they have been incredibly consistent and they have not played too much with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with expectations. And uh, the third point is, is they are in inverted commas. Crazy way of wanting more inflation is it's not because they don't trust their numbers, but they're saying higher inflation must only come at the back of higher wages. And then they proceed to explain that in detail. Mm. And that's a good thing because it is not a deflationary policy. Can you see? I mean, whereas the Fed says whatever happens, and even if it kills a little bit of the economy, we're going to bring it down. Okay, the Japanese says, no, 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 no. We want actually to bring it up. <laughs> and we want to bring it up in terms of people spending more money and employers paying high wages. Well, when I hear that, I say, who is the guy that it is expansionary as opposed to contractionary, despite the fact that it says here? I told you, it's a crazy world completely. Maybe and that. This is, this is why I really, actually, I'm telling my clients go progressively, start going, moving away from neutral and go positive on Japan. Maybe this is why um, perhaps the. Uh... And also, Peter, I'm going to admit, I have to say that. What a defense sector. Wow. That the defense sector is a real yummy. This easily is going to be, become possibly the third or the fourth biggest de defense sector in the world. Because the Japanese very quietly are young. And they are, I mean, seriously. Mm. And they've got some big companies in the sector, haven't they? Like Mitsubishi oh, Heavy Industries and, and, and the likes, and global also, leaders. Also with Korea, this is horrible to say because I'm not a warmonger. Also with Korea, they can produce virtually anything that kills Name it, that kills, they can produce it. Airplanes, guns, small guns, big guns, uh, munitions, telecommunications, uh, naval material, the whole world. Okay, and uh, the way the world is going, okay, defense sectors are still doing very well. But you mm -hmm. can recommend it because it's like telling people that uh, the morality of the war is, is not a question. But on the other hand, if you want to make money, well, what can you do? Still people buy tobacco companies. <laughs> Mm. But the defence theme seems to be a global one that's going to continue throughout this year, doesn't it? And it's going to continue for several more years. I am more convinced than ever. And what is going on very quietly in, in Asia is, is they are spending a hell of a lot more money. And it is, doesn't hit the headlines as India does, as South Korea does, as Australia, for God's sake, is doing. Okay, they are creating an enormous 
uh, nuclear power submarine fleet. Wow. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, Andrew, look, it's been great talking to you this morning. Very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you for your insights. And we'll talk again next Thursday morning. That's Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Well, of course, the big news of the weekend is going to be Saturday's presidential election um, in Taiwan, a three-way race. How close is this race at the moment? Well, technically, within 10 days of, of the uh, election, we're not supposed to talk about polls. So you're going to get me in big trouble with the authorities here in Peter, uh, here in Taiwan, Peter. But uh, for the most part, the DPP candidate, the incumbent vice president, he's been ahead consistently in polls uh, throughout the campaign season. And it would be a, a stunning upset if he were to lose. OK. I mean, this this election is being cast as maybe in a year where there's a record number of elections. Half the global population is going to vote. But this is sort of being cast as maybe one of the three most important elections of the year, along with the US and India uh, later on in, in the year. How significant is this going to be? Uh, I tend to be a cynic on that because it gets repeated too often by journalists. It becomes a bit of a cliche, especially because I live here. Uh, I, You know, all elections are important. That's what's someone always says in a democracy, this is the most important election in the world. This is the most important election in your life. Somebody says that in every election cycle for every democracy. And, and frankly, uh, you know, you mentioned India, Indonesia is also voting, Bangladesh just voted. You know, these, these are much larger po- populations and some of them have greater volatility. If you look at what happened in, in Bangladesh, it's a disputed election. The, the opposition boycotted it. And that ha- that's a situation that has the risk of uh, you know, becoming much more dangerous. Uh, so, uh, yeah, obviously the China-Taiwan tensions are, are, are looming here. China might uh, show its displeasure by engaging in more military exercises like it's done in the recent past. But but I think there's been a bit too much over-dramatization of this is the most important in the world or this is the most important election ever in Taiwan. Because four years from now, Taiwan will have another presidential election and somebody will say this is the most important election in the world or in your life. But presumably the, the, the key thing here in this election is that it has the potential to really shape or reshape uh, US-China relations and, and US-Taiwan relations as well in a way that those other elections um, aren't going to do so. Well, if if William Lai of the Democratic Progressive Party wins, we're just going to see more of what, what occurred over the past eight years, which is there's no government to government communication between China and Taiwan. The United States has to uh, constantly show that it has Taiwan's back uh, and China will continue to use those tools that it likes to use to put pressure on Taiwan, such as military exercises, persuading countries to switch de- diplomatic recognition. There's still 13 left. Uh, so those are 13 targets for China to uh, try and persuade them to switch to China and keeping Taiwan out of international organizations and otherwise just just uh, trying to put pressure on on a William Lai administration. So we've had eight years of that. If Lai wins, we'll have four more years of that. And there's been a lot of talk about election interference. Do, do Taiwanese people feel that uh, the mainland is interfering in, in the election? And how do they how is that influencing them in any way? 
Well, for people who are, are not going to vote for the DPP, which actually looks like the majority, except they're going to split it between two candidates, they believe a lot of this uh, so-called election interference stuff is basically just a scam from the, the incumbent government to scare voters. But a lot of it is more talk than actual truth. And, and of the cases that have been brought to prosecution in, in, in recent weeks, it's very low level elected officials or, or what uh, we usually translate from Mandarin to English is like a, a borough warden. Who, who got a free trip to China and then they get arrested for, for interfering in the election when really a borough warden has minimal ability to uh, persuade voters who live in his or her uh, constituency to change their vote. So sometimes there's more scaremongering than actual actual substance to these allegations. And frankly, after what happened on Tuesday when the government uh, sent a false alarm about a Chinese missile launch when it was actually a Chinese-German uh, joint research effort uh, for a satellite, scientific satellite launch that had been announced weeks in advance, so, uh, but the government still sent a, a, a missile launch warning to everybody's mobile phone uh, when, th when that launch was done by China on Tuesday. And a lot of people had a very negative reaction to that. And they mm -hmm. saw it as the government trying to scare people. Uh, if you don't vote for us, then you know, China's going to take over. Even though that was uh, clearly a, a peaceful sort of launch, is it normal for, for China to launch missiles over, over Taiwan? Oh, but this wasn't a missile. This was a satellite. Well, uh, it was a, a research a satellite. satellite. Uh, and rockets. Would they normally launch rockets? Yeah, China, over, China over... routinely launches scientific satellites in, in different directions. Sometimes they fly over Taiwan, but they're flying, uh, you know, at such a, uh, a high atmospheric uh, uh, length, uh, or, mm. you know, they're so high in the atmosphere that they are not a threat to Taiwan. And really, the distinction here is that China routinely uh, launches satellites that routinely fly over Taiwan. At very high altitudes, but this time, you know, four days before the election, the government decided to issue uh, a warning, and the warning in, in Mandarin said satellite, but in English it said missile air raid missile launch, <laughs> and it really freaked people out. And, and once it became clear that this was a, a research satellite that everybody knew China was going to be launching because they had, they had sent public notices about it before the launch, it really came across as as the government trying to influence the election in its favor. Mm, I mean, on that thing that the KMT, the opposition KMT, they're, they're presenting this election as a choice between war or peace. Is that how the majority of Taiwanese citizens see it? Uh, no, because a lot of people are not voting on China-Taiwan issues. A lot of people are going to vote on personal pocketbook issues, or they're voting for honesty and transparency in government, and they look at the the, the candidates differently. So some people could think that, that William Lai is, is the best candidate for managing the economy, and someone else might think it's Ko wen or, or Ho Yo Yi. Uh, so voters are not only looking at the war and peace or China versus Taiwan issues. They are looking at other issues as well, pocketbook issues, cost of housing, cost of childcare, cost of elder care. Uh, th those are big issues for a lot of voters, including uh, especially younger voters, people who are starting out their careers, starting families. They're very worried about cost of housing and the cost mm -hmm. of childcare. Uh, so voters do look at a number of issues. It's not only about China versus Taiwan. And I think we've seen that during the campaign. I mean, the candidates have no choice. They have to spend a lot of time talking about other issues. So uh, your listeners should not assume that 
the election is only about China, Taiwan, or that the candidates are talking about China versus Taiwan 24-7. Definitely not the case. Mm. And, and the economy, I mean, is this election coming um, at a time when the economy is starting to show signs of picking up, isn't it? Because it was obviously affected by the, uh, the, the slowdown in the semiconductor industry, the global semiconductor industry last year. That's starting to uh, turn around. We saw that in TSMC's uh, sort of results, the Taiwanese stock market, one of the best performing markets in the world um, last year. How's that all playing out? Well, the cynics are, are, are concerned, though, because if if the uh, the cycle of the of the electronic consumer electronics industry is is reaching a point where you know, people have restocked already, uh, the the work from home buying splurge that's long over. Uh, there might be too, you know, might have been too much spending on AI in 2023. Uh, so the the view from analysts, most analysts on the street are not predicting a particularly high level of growth. Some might even see it as, as sluggish. Uh, and of course, Taiwan's growth is, is dependent on its export market since the domestic market is so small. So ultimately, Taiwan's economy uh, is going to be affected by U.S. economic situation. And of course, China, keeping in mind that China is still Taiwan's largest export destination, usually around mid-30s uh, as a percentage of its total exports. So if China is slowing down, then Taiwan is going to suffer. And is there much difference between the three candidates on their growth plans, economic plans for for Taiwan? In a word, no. So when it comes to economic issues, uh, I think the candidates are largely aligned. What we see is a very large amount of, of subs discussion about subsidies for those things I mentioned earlier, housing, childcare, elder care, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so when it comes to domestic policy, there is not much difference. The, where the candidates differ for the most part is, is on uh, China policy. Now, what about there was a report in the uh, the Financial Times yesterday which suggests that the Biden administration is going to send a high level delegation to Taipei um, after the election. Now, they have sent delegations before, but it does seem rather provocative, doesn't it, to send a delegation immediately after the presidential election that presumably is not going to please China. It won't. It won't please China. But the, again, as you mentioned, the Biden delegate, Biden administration has sent uh, delegations previously. So the other times that Biden sent a delegation, they they just didn't have the opportunity to align it to such a major event in Taiwan. Uh, but uh, also keep in mind. These are not current officials, right? So the delegation will be made up all of former somethings who worked for uh, Democratic administrations or Republican administrations, because as you said, it'll be bipartisan, uh, but they're all former somethings. They're not currently serving in the government. There's precedent for the Biden administration doing this. China will complain, but this is probably not going to be a big issue in US-China relations. Mm. It, it is hard to imagine, though, what, what exactly this is going to achieve, isn't it? I think it's more a get to know you. So the, the former somethings will come here. They'll meet the president elect. Then they'll go back to the White House and say the, the president elect of Taiwan, no matter who it is, they've pledged not to be a troublemaker. They've pledged to invest in defense. You know, part of this is, is about buying weapons, have no doubt. Right. So the delegation wants to hear from the next president that they're going to spend a lot of money on U.S. weapons. Mm. And uh, finally, we shouldn't forget as well as the presidential election. Of course, there's legislative elections going on at the same time. Um, in some ways, presumably that could be more important than who wins the presidency. 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because that, that is something that sometimes uh, foreign uh, media don't really focus on. Uh, but if if William Lai of the DPP wins the election, it still looks very, very uh, challenging for the DPP to maintain a majority in the legislature. So if he's elected president, but he doesn't enjoy a, a majority in the legislature, um, it's going to be a lot hard, a lot harder to pass laws. So over the past eight years under President Tsai, her DPP has had a majority in the legislative end. So they could pass whatever laws they wanted. They could do whatever monitoring of the of the executive branch or not do any monitoring of the executive branch that the legislative caucus felt like doing or not doing. But if it's a, a combination of the Chinese Nationalist Party or Guomindang and the Taiwan People's Party that make up a majority, it's going to be a lot difficult for the executive branch and the legislative branch to work together. And that is a formula for chaos. Okay, well, it's going to be an interesting weekend. And and Ross, you're going to be back with us on Monday on Money Talks uh, to discuss the outcome of the Taiwan election. So we look forward to that. Thank you very much indeed. Looking forward to it. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Have a good day. Money Talk.